This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Driscoll, your host. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Helen Solterer, the co-editor, along with Vincent Juice, of the volume Migrants Shaping Europe, Past and Present, Multilingual Literatures, Arts and Cultures, published with Manchester University Press in 2022. Dr. Solterer is professor of Romance Studies at Duke University and recipient of a number of prestigious research grants, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2020. Her research and writing addresses a broad array of important topics from pre-modern French literary, theater, and gender studies to medievalisms and contemporary thought and James Joyce's legacy among his inventive circle of friends and interlocutors. It's a great joy today to be discussing a a book born of collaborative spirit. So Helen, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Thank you, Kate. It's a treat to be able to talk with you and here in Durham, North Carolina. And I have to say straight off, as I imagine our discussion, I see around us the dozen or so other collaborators who made this book possible and under the most strenuous circumstances um, during the early days of the pandemic. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you immediately called to our attention uh, this keyword collaboration, because it really lies at the heart of this incredible feat, uh, the volume that you and Vincent uh, pulled together. So I'd love it if we could maybe turn the, the clock backwards a little bit. And if you could give us a sort of general idea of how it was that you came to be interested in this topic, so rich, multilingual literatures, arts and cultures. And what about your own research path led you here? So um, I've been thinking and teaching and working with others on uh, fiction in a variety of languages and specifically pre-modern fiction because I am always struck by the experimental qualities of such fictions in the ways that they pursue uh, fundamental questions. And that uh, ever since I personally uh, was discovering on bookshelves in my family, everything from the letters of Eloise to the personal poetry of Francois Villon to the art of uh, the little recognized uh, historian Françoise Henri. Along the way, several teachers have always been inspiring me. And that was in Washington, that was in Paris, and that was in Dublin. I've always enjoyed and frankly insisted on teaching in French because I think everyone involved in this uh, collective project, and I'm sensing yourself, Kate, we're always between languages, what the French called entre deux. And that is, um, for me, a wonderful, positive provocation. So in the Department of Romance Studies, um, 
here at Duke. So that involves colleagues in uh, Spanish and Latin American, in Italian, and also in Latin American. It's been um, remarkable to consider the kinds of questions about fiction that have always been uh, in my thinking in that wide scale comparative way. So of course, the issue of uh, migrant literature, um, migrants' contributions epitomize that. Um, And once we uh, zero in on that, it's impossible to proceed without doing so across languages. And that includes in the pre-modern, what is a remarkable range of uh, languages. Absolutely. And I, I really love how you just launched into that answer by recognizing the experimental quality of, of fiction. And um, that just makes me think really immediately then about this volume and so many of the experimental um, strengths that it really brings to the fore. So could you also give us a little bit of background on the origin story of the book? I know that our listeners, for instance, will be very eager to know of its multimedia growth over time. So could you provide us with some of those details? Do you remember, Kate, the year 2015? (laughs) (laughs) It feels like some time ago. <laughs> it <laughs> is, yes, uh, a long time ago, I think emotionally and in our work for many of us. It was a tough year before the pandemic. Um, but if we can recollect something of it together now, you might have a sense of the way the news feeds across Europe and actually here in the Americas, too, were sounding the alarm about the so-called migrant crisis. There were writers, too, that were who were mobilizing. I'll give you an example of one, Malice de Querongal, uh, who writes in French, As stade la nuit, at the stage of night, who, like many writers, were mobilizing in that year. Aghast, confronted by the drownings in the Mediterranean, the rousting out and destruction of campsites, of so-called migrants in many places. It was a so-called emergency. It was proclaimed as unprecedented. Really? A group of us were not at all convinced. And it began with a set of colleagues in our Duke Department of Romance Studies, also in art and art history, other colleagues in Spain, in France, and other places. And I think, first of all, of Elvira Vilches, who played a key role in this early stage. So we mobilized, began developing quickly a set of undergraduate courses. And they were combined with a project of a small installation at the National Museum here at Duke that we launched in the fall of 2018. That whole process um, led us to call on uh, a number of creative people who with us understood the key significance of confronting and dismantling the anti-immigrant rhetoric um, that was falsely claiming this crisis. And we were intent on developing in its place one chapter of of a cultural history of the movements of peoples and their contributions in and around peoples. So we began with a workshop at the National Museum, and our colleague, the artist uh, Pedro Lash, for example, brought in the global curator, Sarah Rasa. I had the good fortune to invite the Cameroonian uh, and often Paris-based artist, Barthélemy Togou, um, and that was a first brainstorming. Whoop! Pandemic strikes, Our stride is interrupted. But in fact, that intensified our commitment. And that's when Vincent Joss came on board. And his thinking and his contribution editorially in shaping the volume as a whole 
is uh, decisive. He also helped to bring on new collaborators, uh, the art, histor- uh, art historian Tenley Bick. Um, so it was then under those uh, stressful, but in fact, um, good conditions for us as a group that the book uh, developed. And it developed in three very focused areas, which involved regions that are often considered um, both in fiction and in political discourse as the doors of Europe, the hot spots also, the, cho- the choke points uh, of, uh, for, for thousands of migrants. And those are the areas around the so-called Spanish enclaves in Morocco, um, the uh, island archipelago of Malta, Lampedusa, and Sicily, uh, in the Italian-speaking regions, and then Kelly, which is key for Vincent, who comes from that part of France, and myself. Right, and as something that just struck me in in that narration of how this project came to be over time is really this this key word of development, and. I know that as literary scholars, we tend to get very excited about titles and the kind of work that they tease out and they allowed us just to, to think about. And the verb in the title is shaping. So migrants shaping Europe. And I'm struck by the vital energy in this term that signals that it's both a process, but more importantly, perhaps it's one that's unfinished. It's still in the make it. And I have to say that one of the most exciting offerings of the book is its take on a Europe that may surprise people. This is a Europe that goes beyond traditionally assumed borders or even shorelines. And in the introduction, you state that this is precisely one of the book's um, organizing principles to attempt to reshape what is a common view of Europe, something that is different from what you say that what we pragmatically call Europe. And so if I can quote the introduction a little bit, it says that at the heart of the book is the argument that migrants are fundamental actors in the historical making of that work in progress that is Europe, in what they do and what they express, and in how they are represented by writers and artists of many stripes. So I'd love to hear you just say a little bit more about this work in progress that is Europe, this living organism, it seems almost, that breathes and moves and grows by by humans, by human hands and minds. I really... Uh, resonate, Kate, with what you were saying in underscoring the living quality of a Europe that is never fixed. It's as mobile. It's as uh, continuously changing as the difficult to quantify numbers of those whom we might be able now to identify as migrants over many centuries and in and around the continent, the geographical space that's easily designated as Europe. So let's also remember the political construct of Europe. No surprise that now we tend to think first of the political construct of the European Union, so contested, especially right now, when it comes to, dare I say, the welcome, could we even say, in the terms of the debate around migration around Europe, the hospitality or the integration of migrants, These are all highly contested, and our book wishes really to reveal and detail in very specific terms in the three areas that we focus on what that contestation yields. Um, Obviously, this moving, human-changing form of Europe is inextricably bound with colonial histories. Um, And so that involves the invasion and the occupation of peoples and territories beyond uh, the European uh, continent. So, for instance, 
the Spanish enclaves on uh, Moroccan soil in North Africa that are, as, for example, our contributor Anna Tabinko uh, underscores, is policed by the EU's border agency of uh, Frontex. But remember that that contested ongoing construction of Europe also is happening within the continent. And so the example um, of what is, yes, today, the British enclave in France, in the European Union. Um, and that's a perspective that uh, Vincent and myself are uh, intent on bringing uh, to bear. Now, again, for those of us who are working on pre-modern and early modern cultural history, there was no such construct of uh, Europe per se, or it was really just beginning to take a germinating form. Um, So we take actually as a model of what that changing um, mobile form of a Europe is uh, from a map that was made by the school of um, Jewish Mallorcan cartographers in the 1370s of an extraordinary uh, art object and document still in the National Library of France, attributed to Abraham Kresk. And it's one of the earliest geographically accurate maps of worlds as the Kresk geographer cartographers knew it at the time. It's bristling with names, port cities, political units. But what's significant is the only humans that are depicted on the map are not in the continent of Europe, nor indeed on the earliest uh, enclaves of Europe on African or Middle Eastern uh, areas, but um, they are a series of Muslim caliphs um, across the North African uh, region, um, of whom perhaps the most well-known to us now is Mansa Musa, uh, the emperor of Mali, uh, reigning in uh, Timbuktu. So I would just say, finally, that a thinker like Denis Gunoun, whose Hypothèse sur l'Europe, um, translated well as About Europe, a philosophical essay, gives a very different perspective, both in contemporary modern and, we insist, pre-modern terms of how we have to keep um, coming into awareness, recognizing and considering the wealth of that shape-changing Europe as far as so-called migrants are uh, involved profoundly in the process. Absolutely. And um, you know, as another early modernist who just agrees so much that um, the early modern remains with us in so many vibrant ways, the this transhistorical arc of the book is really what makes it. I mean, among so many other of its of its incredible qualities, just so impactful. Um, it provides this this really profound meditation on the continuities, but also as you're as you're saying here, the changes in histories that so often get overlooked unless we're we adopt that long horizon to look backwards. And it sounds, you know, that in organizing the book's different parts, it truly was important to you and to Vincent as editors to narrate the shaping process as a series of contrast, but also dialogues among languages, among histories and places. And I love that description of the map that you just shared with us and and how, and how then we can read the pre and early modern cases uh, as they speak to the contemporary ones. Absolutely key. Um, and it's uh, really engaging, Kate, to hear you put it in terms of your own work as well. I don't know if you feel this um, in the United States we live in. Um, it's not surprising that from this vantage point here, for example, in North Carolina, that the chief paradigm um, often for migration is an American one whether in the nationalistic or in the hemispheric uh, sense. And again, in these last couple of days, we're hyper aware of the operations this involves. 
on our borders um, with the passage, the detention um, of migrants. So a number of us have been really alert to this kind of calcified stereotype, old world, new world, where the new world is really the only theater uh, of um, migrant movement. We wanted to shake that up, break it apart, in fact, and, um, and break it apart by this expansive dynamic construct of a Europe in motion itself. We were aware, I would underscore what is still the real grip of the modern nation state once you began once we begin really uh, grappling with uh, uh, migrants' experiences in uh, a larger Europe, because the nation states across Europe have generally elided many peoples, many different ethnic groups who were expulsed or, frankly, in some cases, exterminated. I would also say that... um, History, modern history, and when we're thinking migrants uh, across and around Europe, often gets telescoped into colonial history, um, into the colonial ambitions of different um, nation states and their um, claims of imperial action. They go elsewhere. They go elsewhere. Um, But we don't want to forget And we're working to restore um, more places in more times where we can track um, the movements and the contributions of migrants within Europe. Um, So just to give a couple examples, and it will be so interesting for listeners to go to the essays of these um, contributors. I would just mention... Vincent's work, for example, on the Chinese indentured workers brought into the north of France during World War I. Or if we go to the many places in time, um, the essay of our colleague uh, James Amlang on the Moriscos, on the indigenous Spanish Muslims who were expo- uh, who were expulsed, or could we even say who were deported from um, Spain as it was building its empire around 1609, and then, of course, which are close to my heart, and it sounds like to you too, Kate, um, when we think of pre-modern and early modern uh, places and times. Um, The essay of another contributor, Akash uh, Kumar, who zeroed in on um, the Arab-speaking Muslims, indigenous in Sicily, their tradition of poets, uh, a poet like Ibn Hamdis, with whom um, Akash uh, thinks. Um, That kind of range also within Europe, um, in that larger sense, in its variety of times, are really the key um, focus of, of the book. I just add one um, unusual but significant way that we organized all of those cases. We took the pre-modern aesthetic structure of the diptych where you juxtapose um, two images. We're juxtaposing cases, pre and early modern, with 20th century and contemporary ones. And the effect, we hope, of that set of diptychs is to highlight what has often been missing um, when we uh, construct a chapter of cultural history of migrants around Europe. So the diptych puts those cases in relation to one another. And that relation is um, important for us, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, hearing you talk through those very 
compelling and very complicated histories in which the book um, is a dialogue with with nationalism, with colonialism, imperialism. All of this makes me go back to really this question of language and the ways that those projects utilize language for political ends. And so the, 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 what we just discussed in terms of the transhistorical hybridity of the book, especially through this modeling of the diptych that is so um, useful to think through, it, 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 it coheres, I think, then with the book Stress on the Multilingual. And for, for listeners to know, parts two, three, and four of this volume are dedicated to the sections migrating in Spanish, migrating in Italian and migrating in French, three languages, of course, with ties back to the imperial Latin language. And the relationship that that comes out of these chapters between language and the living, to go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, is full of so much nuance. And especially for the chapter's protagonists who are forced to acquire different languages as a means of survival often in new and unfamiliar places. And I'd love to just hear you say a few words about about that ability and sometimes the necessity to, as the book describes, live in central languages and how that maybe has emerged as one of the focuses of the volume and the different histories that it traces. I think for all of us, Kate, and I'm curious about your own experience this way, for all of us who um, contributed to this book, um, migrating happens first and foremost through language, through self-expression, through communication and dialogue of all those we are attempting to identify as migrants. So yes, it's the point of departure, it's the ground, and it's really the fundamental principle of the book and um, for each of the essays of the contributors. Impossible, in fact, to conceive of it um, without attending first and foremost to that process of passing into another language. It's a currency. It's a way of life. Um, so just to give a couple examples in the three sections that you described, um, of course, Arabic is one of the major other languages that's interacting um, in um, the experiences, in the writing of a number of the migrant writers considered um, and artists as well. Um, so Arabic in relation uh, to Castilian Spanish in relation uh, to Italian. Um, so, for example, the essay of Saskia Zielkowski on this remarkable co-edited um, anthology, Superman Was a Refugee too. Ichaba uh, Skego working with the United Nations Refugee Agency that really gives you an extraordinary spectrum of the languages that are part of uh, Italian culture and literature uh, today. Um, obviously, there are the uh, pre-modern uh, cases of the multilingual. I mentioned um one already. I'll mention one uh, that uh, really was at the heart of my own thinking. The 14th century ballads of the poet Eustache Deschamps, one of which has the extraordinary uh, refrain, tout devient nouvel langage. There's always another new language to come. So his ballads that were being composed at the fault line, the battle line between the English and the French kingdom in the 14th century that we think of usually in terms of this cliche of the Hundred Years' War, was actually an area where um, English, obviously Flemish, but other French vernaculars were at a stake. So as you say, it was a necessity 
to carry on for anyone living, working, or composing like the poet Deschamps in that area. But what was a necessity could also become something fruitful, something uh, engaging. And I think that's a really important aspect for us to keep uh, in mind. I would just add one last um, really commitment for all of us working on this volume, which was one to resist what is the dominant lingua franca today. Will we call it American? Would we call it English? Would we call it globish? Would we call it a version of Google translated language? Or the GPT, we, that chat GPT language. Just you know, exactly. could all develop in interesting ways. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're, I think, wishing instead to unleash the verve and to advocate for a very different spectrum of multilingual. So we're cutting across the Romance language spectrum in its welcoming and uh, really vibrant creative uh, interaction with Somali, Eritrean, Arabic, as we already mentioned, also Mandarin Chinese, several others. But um, I think... uh, it will be reading and discovering the different essays that will really give um, people the sense of that remarkable spectrum that is the multilingual of Europe today and in its depth. Absolutely. And to go back to even just how you started this answer, which just painted so many interesting and and compelling images of of hybridities and diversities, it, it brings me to this question about how language is utilized to remember space and 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 recreate space and of course what that means for remembering communities and recreating communities and migration has you know so many different tones and characteristics not only in this volume or among the comments that we're recalling here but really in the history of human geography and where people have lived how they have lived and whom they've lived with and the book it, it seems that it was in part in conversation with the diptych model, it traces some of these tensions between place and displacement and the need for language, home and exile, the need for language, and really between belonging and estrangement. And I'm thinking um, of this question, you're right, even even Superman was a refugee. Um, Mm. Recall the the volume by Jabashego that Saskia Zakowski works on in, in the book. And how did these tensions, let's call them, or, or experiences, let's say, develop as, as part of the, the assembling of the book? Was this something that you and Vincent had, had thought of well in advance, or did, did, did this history of homing and unhoming, or belonging and unbelonging, just develop naturally from, from the way that the contributors were speaking to each other, perhaps without even formally knowing it ahead of time? I think individually and as a group, we really counted on each contributor's own sense and own set of questions about what constituted place in the particular cases they were investigating. Um, What makes for a home? What are the feelings of displacing um, circumstances? Um, oppressive conditions, the search for another sense of belonging. Um, That, I think, was one of the strengths as I um, remember and look at at the book now, is that the contributors really explored them independently. We did enjoy a number of Zoom discussions where there was a kind of um, fertilization of um, the thinking of one contributor with another. Um, uh, So, for example, um, Tenley Bick, the art historian who works in global art history and, uh, and in relation to Italy, whom Vincent brought into the project, 
when I think of the way um, she focuses on the Porta Lampedusa Europa done by the two artists Mimo Palladino or um, Arabella Pio, um, the contradictions that Tenley brings out, um, painful contradictions between the so-called open-door policies mm. involving migrants, but in fact, the reality uh, on uh, Lampedusa of the island is a site of confinement. Um, so um, that just gives you one example that's, that strikes me. And again, um, listeners will discover the richness by reading Tenley's piece. But of course, as you mentioned, and you start with, um, Kate, what you were saying, Obviously, the psychic and emotional dimension of placing and displacement um, through language, that's the primordial circumstance for many of us in, that, in our volume mm -hmm. because it involves self-expression. It involves communication and dialogue. And of course, it involves the creation of fiction whether in literary or visual artistic terms, and again, across languages. And that I think is one of um, really the key elements that we were all uh, committed uh, uh, to exploring. Mm -hmm. And I still I have resonating in my ears this, this question of the experimental quality of fiction that, that you started with and how the book resonates with so much of your of the of the long-standing questions that you've asked in your scholarship and in this volume um, not only are we traversing so many different cultures and languages and media but we're we're constantly thinking especially with this diptych model of the visual and and also the psychic and the emotional and so it's it, there's there, there's so much to think about but I but I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking through this question of the multimedial and how the book is really a model for bringing together thematically linked objects, whether they're speeches or, or, or um, not, not speeches, but uh, examples drawn from speech, let's say, discursive models, writing, poetry, stories, visual art, and other types of objects. And, and how can we unite those in a study about histories of humans? And just as the migrant actors of the volume are in are in motion and constant motion and emotion, as we're saying too, it seems so much that the objects and the images that they both carry with them and produce over time are also in motion, just as they represent the the human motion. So, um, I imagine there's there's many different answers to this question, but but why would you say then it's important for the histories of migrant bodies to put word and image in dialogue together the way that the volume so beautifully models in a way. Here's where the collaboration um, that the book uh, depended on really comes to the fore, Kate. Um, I can't imagine uh, any stage of the process without really that collective uh, process that linked um, the artists in our midst um, Raquel Sabatier de Prada, as well as Pedro Lash, who I mentioned, the art historians, the photographers, a collaborator of Vincent's, Eric Lelieu, Darren Lupi, the collaborations um, with them, with uh, colleagues um, in our Department of Romance Studies who work uh on uh, literature and other forms of culture. And we're not gonna forget the historians who also played a role in thinking the indispensable um, investigation of uh, the visual, the visual arts, its documentation as part and parcel of the narratives, um, of the literary expressions and of the journalistic accounts. Uh, of um, those migrating towards and around and within Europe. So the very first step we took in a workshop um, really called on the artists and the curators uh, in our midst 
And that was the first step um, that led to the small installation at the National Museum in 2018. And the book emerged from that and built on it with other um, contributors. So just to give you a sense of um, the variety of um of objects that we were lucky enough to bring together in the installation. Um, I think it was a first in North Carolina, working with the uh, historian of science and curator, Pedro Raposo, who's now at the American Academy of Sciences in Philadelphia. We brought a 13th century astrolabe of Muhammad ibn al-Fatu al-Kahamari, um, the astrolab as one of those key instruments of Islamic science that was already a part of um, um, community uh, uh, community life in what we think of as a Spain, but of course was the caliphate of An Andalus at the time, or the engravings of Jacques Callou named the Egyptians, but whom we recognize today as a remarkable small uh, narrative of the movements of the nomadic peoples of Roma. Or juxtaposed with um, the the fabric uh, installation of the contemporary artist Annette Messager, who loved that her humanoid figures, they're called two replicants together, were side by side by Kelo's Roma. Um, those figures that Annette made out of uh, fabric, she saw as witness to the converging numbers of migrants in her region around uh, Calais. Or I had mentioned the Cameroonian artist Barthélemy Togu, a first. Uh, his work is in the Nasher Museum collection, and he had carved these remarkable large wooden stamps mimicking uh, the uh, instruments of immigration officials legalizing your entry. But he prints from those wooden stamps uh, images with sardonic, provocative inscriptions that usually work across several languages, such as illegal, illegal. And then, of course, Raquel's installation, Cornered, um, she calls it, which is she uh, underscores uh, an emotional, uh, atmospheric expression of those sub-Saharan migrants who make it after crossing the desert to the Spanish enclaves. Um, and she has built an intricate pattern wooden structure that draws on Islamic design patterns on which she projects um, a dance that's also accompanied by a song to give witness to those sub-Saharan migrants often stopped and harassed in the Spanish enclaves. Um, so it is impossible for for me and I, I know for all of us to have um, undertaken and finally completed the book without putting the work of the visual artists together um, with the work of those on uh, literature uh, and other verbal forms. And I might add, because often the artists, and certainly someone like uh, Kello, captured in image, what was barely being recorded or transmitted um, in verbal form. Right. And that makes me think um, so much then about, about those who have interaction with the book or with its installation, installations, that the book itself is not only really full of all these different multimedia dialogues, but the book itself is part of this multimedia history. And do you remember any of those reactions or just watching others interact um, with the art when it was at the Nasher as part of the installation? Um, just wondering, yeah, in the different ways that maybe you, you, you saw surprise or intrigue or the kind of public that would have been drawn to, to that installation a few years ago. 
It was delightful to see the excitement of students, uh, especially the undergrads, those, for example, who had been in the seminars of Elvira Vilches, uh, my own Raquel's uh, and uh, Pedro's. Um, I think we uh, brought out um, a different cross-section of Duke undergrads whom I often encountered um, in the uh, museum. Ellen Raymond, who was the curator at the Nasher, who was our main collaborator there, um, she often remarked on the student um, involvement, um, those who came to see the show. But I would also say I was struck by a different Durham who came to see the show. Um, and that's Black Durham. Um, and I will never forget a number of uh, Durhamites who came up to me after they had seen the Kresk map and seen the Mali emperor on the map um, highlighted as a major force. Um, so that's the luck Kate, um, and frankly, I have to say the privilege that we have at Duke um, to be able to work closely with the National Museum to put on such uh, an installation. Absolutely. And those moments are so important when we can extract from archives things that just so often have been overlooked. And if we think about those maps of the new world, if as it was named and so used in, in propaganda in a different way, uh, you there's there's a great variety of alternatives that people have probably become quite accustomed to seeing, and um, to have to have uh, uh, to have the memory of someone being struck by that makes me think immediately of the types of things that we can do with our students in classrooms. And I adore so much that this book and its installation in different phases of production and creativity has involved students so dynamically. Um, and it really is such an exciting then homage to students' voices, their participation, and their contributions and their eager engagement in this topic so that it doesn't remain um, a scholarly abstraction or, or a human experience that perhaps not all of our students have gone through, let's say, when migrating in these in these complex and complicated ways, but that doesn't make a barrier, that doesn't create a barrier from their um, ability to, to intervene and, and contribute. So I have many ideas about um, how students can benefit from multilingual transhistorical inquiries and in terms of different parts of the book or even just this as a model of that other institutions could potentially adopt how do you how do you see this book maybe migrating on its own into into other types of pedagogical quarters mm. um, the book is also open access uh, thanks to a remarkable um, uh, program through uh, the Duke Bostock uh, Library. So it's very easy, simple, I think, for um, any number of uh, publics. And here it is really thought-provoking and delightful to imagine the next waves of students at whatever level to um, open with one click um, a single chapter to discover um, the richness of, for example, um, uh, the literatures, uh, all of the multiliteratures associated with uh, today's Italy, for example, or um, to uh, zero in with another click on a chapter um, that involves uh, the writing of a migrant uh, worker uh, in Anna Tabinko's essay, or again in underscoring um, the pre-modern to click on um, the essay that I did on the enclave, which brings together Deschamps with the historian Froissart, but also with contemporary writers who were very uh, connected and expressive about um, the challenge of the migrants coming into France and directed towards Calais, writers like Patrick Chamoiseau or Emmanuel Carrère. But I don't want to forget, Kate, what it is for those publics 
um, to click on every chapter and to get a sense of the book as a whole. And here I'm hearing again one of the chief undergraduate collaborators on the book, um, the graduate now of Duke Shreya Hurley, who um, told me again recently what a remarkable thing it was to see this book finally out. That is the ensemble, the uh, whole that the book represents um, as an initiation um, into these three key locales, um, those around um, the Spanish enclaves in North Africa, those uh, in uh, around Lampedusa in Sicily, and those in Calais, what it is um, for um, a variety of different publics to get a sense of that whole. That is very exciting and a very fortunate thing, given that is the book as a whole is online. Absolutely. And not only the great benefit that there is to reading each of the contributors' chapters in the volume, but also having access to those bibliographies and migrating into the sources, both primary and secondary, visual discursive dance, all these exciting uh, video um, sources that then are before readers' eyes too, um, really an exciting and very generous affordance because of the, the digital, the open access. So Helen, I know that I've taken up a lot of your time today, but I want to end with a look towards the future and learn from you um, what what comes next after this heroic achievement in collaborative effort. Are there different ways that migrant shaping Europe might influence future projects or what do you have next on the docket? Well, it's a, a style of working, um, Kate, that stays very much with me. Um, but as many of us have been going through, of course, there are projects that had uh, been stalled, marooned a little bit by the pandemic, but at last, at last, are, are coming um, really to their full form. So I'm completing an almanac um, that I'm constructing with quite a variety of fictions. Of course, there's a uh, fundamental and rich variety of pre-modern fictions. So I'm fascinated with the distinctive forms of them, the political uh, dream vision, drama, and also graphic narrative. And the almanac really gives a sense of all of their times and their resurgences in other fictions, on again, off again, across different languages, in different cultures. Why? Because I am showing the potency of certain pre-modern ideas. And guess what? The first one very much intimately linked to the work we did together on this book, the idea of the freedom of movement of peoples, especially in times of uh, conflict. So I relish putting the final dots on this uh, almanac book and sharing it and debating with others about it soon. Oh, that's fabulous. And of course, the the language of resurgence of pre-modern brings me back to the living and the afterlives of, of these of these histories. Um, that's that's very human and and moving too. So we can very much look forward to seeing that finalized and available soon. Um, Helen, thank you so very much, honestly, for these valuable details and stories about migrants shaping Europe, past and present. I so appreciate our conversation and thank you for joining me today. It's a delight. And again, let's think of all of the contributors who made this book possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Helen.